From Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! As the largest gathering of world leaders in history continues at the United Nations today, we'll speak with Noam Chomsky and the Reverend Jesse Jackson about peacekeeping, intervention, and war. All that and more coming up on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Welcome to Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. This news from East Timor, dozens of foreign aid workers fled West Timor today, and Indonesia sent in fresh troops a day after a mob led by pro-Indonesian militia gangs killed three UN workers and three local people at the border town of Atambua. Yesterday's attack, said to be the worst ever against civilian UN staff, shocked world leaders, including the Indonesian president who was attending the UN Millennium Summit. He said, this was done at a time when I'm in New York at the United Nations in order to embarrass me. The brutality of the slayings has placed new pressure on Abdurrahman Wahid, already struggling to fix a myriad of crises across the sprawling nation of Indonesia to crack down on the militias and close refugee camps they use as a safe haven in West Timor. Critics say militias are supported by the Indonesian military. And yesterday at the United Nations, Cuban President Fidel Castro took the stage, famed for speeches of eight hours or longer. He elicited an explosion of laughter from kings and presidents at the summit when he stepped to the podium, pulled out a white handkerchief, and covered the light that warned speakers they're approaching the five-minute time limit. He stuck to the time limit, and world leaders laughed as he removed the handkerchief before returning to his seat, but didn't laugh as he spoke. Assuming his long-standing role as an unofficial spokesperson for the developing world, he accused three dozen wealthy nations of monopolizing power at the expense of poorer nations. The Cuban leader decried the poverty that he says afflicts 80% of the world's 6 billion people. He accused rich nations, especially the United States, of using their power to, quote, make us poorer, more exploited, and more dependent. Inequalities in distribution of wealth and knowledge around the globe, he said, are at the heart of the world's conflict. The Cuban president went on to say, quote, current underdevelopment and poverty have resulted from conquest, colonization, slavery, and plundering in most countries of the planet by the colonial powers. Castro said that wealthy nations are morally obligated to, quote, compensate our nations for the damages caused throughout the centuries. The Cuban leader also complained that a radical reform of the United Nations to make it more democratic is not being discussed. He noted that when the world body was formed more than half a century ago, there were few independent nations. He attacked the current UN system in which the five veto-wielding members of the Security Council, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, and France, have overwhelming power while the rest of the 189 U.N. member states have little. The U.N. system envisioned by Castro would take away the vetoes and make the 189-member General Assembly preeminent over the Security Council in running U.N. affairs. 
We'll have more on the issue of the U.N. summit, the issue of intervention of colonization, when we speak with Noam Chomsky and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And in Washington yesterday, the chief executive of Bridgestone Firestone apologized to highly critical members of Congress for his company's role in the 135 deaths linked to Firestone tire failures worldwide. But Firestone officials continued to cite the driving habits of motorists for many of the problems that led to the recall of 6.5 million tires. Under sharp questioning from Louisiana Republican Congress member Billy Towson, a House Commerce Subcommittee chair, um, all, however, Ono said the tire failure stemmed from a lack of care for the tires. He said, that would be my conclusion. Ono is Masatoshi Ono, uh, who is the head of Bridgestone Firestone. And this news from the D.C. area, Justice Department officials said yesterday they are moving toward a broad civil rights investigation of the Prince George's County Police Department as a private autopsy showed that a man killed Friday by a county detective who trailed him to Virginia was shot five times in the back. Also yesterday, the FBI confirmed that it has opened a criminal investigation into the fatal shooting of Prince Jones, who is 25 years old, by Corporal Carlton Jones. That brings to more than a dozen the number of individual FBI criminal investigations opened into incidents involving Prince George's officers since April of listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. More world leaders are gathered this week at the UN Millennium Summit than at any time in history with the broad goal of recommitting to the United Nations ideals, the most important being, quote, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. Today, the 15 Security Council members are holding a summit within the summit to agree on broad peacekeeping principles. They also promise to consider recommendations in a recent U.N.-commissioned report calling for reform to organize U.N. operations quickly. Support for improvement of peacekeeping operations is high in light of the laundry list of failed operations in recent years, with President Clinton and British Prime Minister Tony Blair advocated a bolstering of the peacekeeping operations on the opening day of the summit, but the resolution to be adopted by the Security Council is short on specifics. 
The U.S. owes the United Nations $1.7 billion, mostly for peacekeeping operations. And Western countries in general are the least willing countries to provide troops and support when they're needed. We're going to turn now to the United Nations. Farhan Haq is on the phone, spokesperson for the United Nations, formerly with Enterprise Service. And Min Vo joins us. She is the United Nations reporter for the Christian Science Monitor. Welcome both to Democracy Now! Farhan Haq, let's begin with you. Uh, this discussion of peacekeeping that's going on, can you lay out the UN peacekeeping operations as they stand now and what's at issue in the summit? Well, the United Nations currently has uh, more than 30,000 uh, uh, military personnel deployed in uh, a number of countries, ranging from missions, uh, very extensive missions in Kosovo and East Timor, a very large scale mission uh, in uh, Sierra Leone to uh, very fledgling uh, operations that are uh, getting on the ground uh, b between Ethiopia and Eritrea and, uh, and an effort to uh, deploy potentially uh, many more peacekeepers in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, about uh, two weeks ago, uh, a 10-member panel that was uh, chaired by the former foreign minister of Algeria, Lakhdar Brahimi, uh, advocated ways in which UN peace operations can be improved. Uh, w among the many things they noted was that the amount of uh, headquarters staff here in New York to control all the troops in the field is uh, is incredibly small. Uh, in many ways, too small to to uh, be reliably effective. Uh, for example, uh, in at headquarters here in New York, there are only 32 uh, officers to provide military planning and guidance for uh, what was, at the time, of, uh, the, the report was being comprised about 27,000 troops on the ground and even more troops today. Uh, there were only nine police staff providing orders for nearly 9,000 uh, police uh, that the UN deploys, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, in all of the various uh, missions that it has. Uh, and, of course, there, there have been perennial problems making sure that the troops that are sent to the field are well-trained, well-equipped, and the missions have the necessary finances so that uh, so that troops are paid, so that uh, we can commence operations and uh, provide the equipment that people need uh, to do an effective job. All of those are, are topics which uh, the Secretary General is hoping that the leaders who are gathered here for the Millennium Summit and, of course, the, the Security Council leaders, uh, when they have their discussion this afternoon at about 1.30, uh, you know, we hope that those sorts of issues will be discussed in those venues. Uh, the latest news uh, we have out of uh, Sierra Leone, members of a band of Maverick fighters holding six British soldiers hostage there, clashed again with a pro-government militia. Um, talking about Sierra Leone, what about the peacekeeping operations there? Well, uh, the, the British soldiers, that, that's a worrying development, but the British uh, soldiers are actually not part of the UN uh, operation there. Those soldiers have... Uh, been involved in efforts to train the Sierra Leonean government, and uh, these were this group of six uh, British and one Sierra Leonean soldier are the remnants of a group of about 12 soldiers who were free uh, who were seized about a week and a half ago by a rebel faction called the West Side Boys. That faction used to actually uh, fight alongside the government a few months ago, but then had a falling out with them, which is a sign of, uh, in some ways, of um, the precarious. Uh, nature of the conflict, that even though uh, uh, events are relatively calm in the areas where the UN troops are now, the situation has been unpredictable for many months and, of course, uh, hit its uh, 
hit its nadir about uh, May and June of this year, when uh, nearly 500 uh, UN troops were seized by the main rebel faction, the Revolutionary United Front. And, uh, and the UN is trying at this stage to bolster its presence on the ground. We have nearly 13,000 troops there. And the Secretary General has asked for more than 20,000 personnel so that the UN can not only bolster its presence in the areas where it is currently located, such as the capital, Freetown, and uh, various areas where refugees and internally displaced people are located, like Mile 91, but to go from those areas into the areas where the RUF remains strong, including uh, many of the um, areas where they continue to uh, profit off their diamond trade. What about the United States' involvement in peacekeeping in Sierra Leone? Well, the U.S. isn't involved in peacekeeping in Sierra Leone at, at this stage. Uh, you know, they don't have any troops on the ground. The, the U.S. government has uh, declared its intention to, uh, to uh, train uh, West African soldiers so that those soldiers can now join up with the expanded U.N. mission once it expands to possibly 20,000 or so troops. And, in fact, uh, apparently U.S. Uh, trainers have already uh, begun their work uh, in terms of sending uh, some trainers over to Nigeria. Um, uh, but, but in general, the, the U.S. Uh, for several years hasn't uh, tended to uh, participate directly in United Nations operations. But there was a small scandal in Sierra Leone when all of those hundreds of U.N. peacekeepers were taken. What was that about? Well, uh, I don't know whether we'd call it uh, a scandal, but at the, at the same time, uh, 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 the U.S. did, in fact, offer, uh, after the, the uh, seizures of the troops, to provide transport for, uh, because we were at that stage trying to get some uh, soldiers, uh, including uh, from Bangladesh and from Jordan, uh, uh, to come into the field uh, so that the, the troops, which at the time were fewer than about 8,000, would uh, would uh, be uh, stronger on the ground, and uh, unfortunately, the uh, the uh, offer of uh, transport assistance from the United States was rather expensive in terms of uh, commercial transport rates. So the U.S. the UN had to uh, reject that offer and uh, rely on uh, on offers from other countries uh, in order to get the the uh, Bangladeshi and Jordanian troops on the ground. So as hundreds of peacekeepers were being held hostage, the U.S. Uh, was charging more than even commercial operations in uh, bringing in reinforcements, peacekeeping reinforcements. Minvo, uh, UN reporter for the Christian Science Monitor, what are your concerns about uh, Western involvement in peacekeeping operations? or who is interested in international affairs, the biggest problem is the lack of involvement of Western countries. Um, in the Security Council, you, you have the five permit members, uh, United States, France, Britain, Russia, and China. Three of these Western countries, the United States, Britain, and France, usually don't have, don't participate in um, uh, these these uh, peacekeeping operations in Sierra Leone, for example, at the time when, as Farhan mentioned, in May, when 500 peacekeepers were kidnapped or captured, uh, there was there wasn't any any of those countries in there 
Instead, the peacekeeping missions were made up of India, Bangladesh, Jordan, uh, Nigeria, and and some other African countries. And it's very common now to, when you look around that you see regional forces or and, and countries such as poor countries such as Bangladesh sending in the bulk of the troops. And often these uh, these troops are ill-trained, ill-equipped, as in the case of Sierra Leone. And so that's the, that was one of the major problems with um, the peacekeeping operation there. Min Vo is United Nations reporter for the Christian Science Monitor. What about concerns about mercenary groups or um, also paramilitary security firms that are working on training soldiers or just involved with battles themselves? I mean, you've got groups like MPRI, for example, based in the United States. We know the executive outcomes from South Africa. Um. It depends on who you ask right now about these military, these militias and mercenaries. Uh, I think some people would say that in the case of Sierra Leone, for example, when when the South African mercenaries were there and then were asked to leave, then things deteriorated really quickly, and Sierra Leone and Freetown experienced an escalation of the civil war, which was not just a normal civil. I mean. A, Civil war is bad, but in Sierra Leone, it was particularly horrendous. People were were being massacred. Civilians were having their limbs chopped off. And so because no one else stepped in, beside, um, there wasn't any – when the mercenaries left and the government forces weren't enough to counter these brutal rebels, then things just deteriorated rapidly. And so I think some Africa watchers would say that it was a bad thing to ask the mercenaries to leave when – no one else was around. Eventually, the Nigerians were able to, um, the Nigerian-led West African peacekeeping force was able to to uh, return things to a, a, a more calm state. Farhan Haq, is there concern at the UN of mercenary forces moving in and replacing uh, peacekeeping forces from the United Nations? Well, I think the, the simple solution to that is... Uh, if people believe that uh, mercenary forces, as, as in the case of Sierra Leone, might do a better job than, uh, than the UN troops, the answer would be to, uh, on our side, would be to improve the effect- effectiveness of the UN troops so that, uh, so that United Nations troops, which are, you know, are there to be impartial, are there to uh, police peace accords rather than to, you know, to work on behalf of you know, whichever side is paying them, which is by definition what a mercenary group would be doing, you know, those impartial UN troops still have a, a usefulness in the modern world, but they need to be made more effective in order that in order that they can do their job. And I and I think uh, it's possible with the right amount of training, the right equipment, and and uh, and the right sort of uh, support, you know, logistical support, communication support for the troops, that it it it's uh, it's likely that. UN troops could uh, could in fact do the job just as effectively, and uh, and remove the temptation to rely on groups that may uh, you know that may want uh, to be paid in mineral concessions or other sorts of uh, concessions in in exchange for the work that they do. Farhan Haq and Minvo, I want to thank you for being with us. Farhan Haq, UN spokesperson, Minvo, UN reporter for the Christian Science Monitor. When we come back. 
from our break, Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at MIT, talking about peacekeeping, war, and intervention issues that are being discussed now at the UN Millennium Summit, the largest gathering of world leaders in history. Stay with us. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Well, let's go to the paper that um, he is such a fierce critic of, the New York Times, and I'm talking about Noam Chomsky, and how they're describing what's going on at the United Nations right now, or at least what President Clinton um, is putting out warnings about. Uh, the front page headline, Clinton warns UN of a new age of civil wars. President Clinton opened the summit meeting of world leaders at the United Nations yesterday, urging the huge gathering to prepare the institution for a new age in which international forces will have to reach regularly and rapidly inside national boundaries to protect threatened people. We're joined by Noam Chomsky, and uh, we're going to uh, go to him in just a minute. Noam Chomsky, who is well known for his analysis of world issues, going on with that New York Times piece with his own time uh, in the front rank of the 149 world leaders uh, gathered, drawing to an end. Clinton also used the moment to try to settle some of the disputes that have dogged his presidency from the Middle East to Russia to Southeast Asia. Uh, it goes on to say the president met separately into the evening with Prime Minister Ehud Barak of Israel and then with the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat in hopes of picking up the broken pieces of the peace agreement to which they came tantalizingly close at Camp David in July. Clinton had warned earlier in the day that like all life's chances, the moment for an accord is fleeting and about to pass. Uh, last night, the White House spokesperson, Joe Lockhart, gave no indication that the meetings had resulted in any progress on the question of control of Jerusalem or other issues dividing Arafat and Barak. He said that as of now, no meetings were scheduled this week among the leaders. Professor Noam Chomsky, welcome to Democracy Now! It's good to have you with us. Well, I don't know if you caught that first paragraph I read from the Times today, but Pres President Clinton opening the summit of uh, world leaders at the UN, urging the huge gathering to prepare the institution for a new age in which international forces will have to reach regularly and rapidly inside national boundaries to protect threatened people. Your response? Well, that actually was brought up by the uh, Secretary General in his call to the uh, Millennium Summit. And uh, what he said is that uh, 
national sovereignty must not be used as a shield for those who violate rights. Uh, and armed intervention authorized by the Security Council is an option that cannot be relinquished. Uh, that seems to me a fair statement, and uh, notice the stress on authorized by the Security Council. Uh, that's a response to Mr. Clinton in advance. Uh, the uh, uh, question is, who, uh, there certainly are circumstances in which uh, uh, it's an option that can't be relinquished. Uh, such exist. They've existed in the past. There's nothing new about this, uh, and they'll exist in the future. Uh, the question is, uh, what form of uh, intervention, armed or otherwise, uh, should be considered? Uh, the world, overwhelmingly, uh, takes the position that it should be intervention authorized by the Security Council. The United States, on the other hand, uh, Clinton in particular, takes the position that it should be armed, uh, armed intervention or other unilateral actions like sanctions uh, undertaken by the United States. Uh, that's a crucial difference. Uh, Kofi Annan is uh, uh, bending over backwards to uh, uh, establish close relations with uh, Western governments, Western corporations, and so on. But nonetheless, he still reflects the uh, overwhelming uh, uh, opinion of the, at least insofar as it's articulated, of, uh, uh, of, of most of the world that uh, any form of intervention that takes place, whether sanctions or force or anything else, uh, should be under international supervision, not unilateral by the United States. That's the crucial issue. And I think that is the issue that uh, uh, sets apart uh, uh, Clinton in, and uh, uh, including these remarks and uh, the call to the summit, uh, which it does reflect, uh, uh, again, as far as we can talk about international opinion, it reflects it. So, for example, uh, last April, uh, there was a very important meeting of uh, what's called G77. It's by now 133 countries, the, basically the South, so-called. That's around 80% of the world's population. They issued a long and uh, detailed uh, document, which was disregarded except for a few disparaging phrases. Uh, but in the document, they also uh, uh, rejected what they called the so-called right of humanitarian intervention uh, not authorized by the Security Council. This is a very serious issue for much of the world, and I think that's the you know, un underlying the nice words is this conflict. I don't know of almost anyone who would question uh, Kofi Annan's statement that, it, that intervention authorized by the Security Council is an option that cannot be relinquished. What do you think of the... Uh resurgence of, and perhaps they've been operating at this level all the time, but of all these, quote, security forums. These are security firms like uh, MPRI in the United States. These are retired NATO generals and others that are working with the support of the U.S. military. They are the ones that are sanctioning the contracts for uh, going to places like Nigeria. Most recently in Nigeria and the Niger Delta, you had MPRI working along with U.S. soldiers, working along with Chevron and other oil companies uh, doing their so-called trainings. That's uh, um, a kind of very thin privatization of unilateral state intervention. Uh, and they've had uh, 
the record goes back some years. Uh, in the, the record of white mercenaries in Africa is a long one, uh, and it's caused enormous damage. Uh, just during the Reagan years alone, the uh, uh, intervention from South Africa, uh, according to the UN, killed about uh, uh, a million and a half people and caused $60 billion of damage in surrounding countries. And that goes back farther than that. Uh, these are the latest form of what are what were called white mercenaries. And of course, their uh, mercenaries are working for somebody. That's what it means to be a mercenary. And uh, as you say, they're working for Chevron, the U.S. government, uh, whoever's paying the tabs, and not just in Africa. So, for example, in uh, uh, in the uh, Yugoslav secession war, uh, MPRI was uh, very actively involved. May have planned uh, the biggest single ethnic cleansing operation, the Croatian uh, offensive uh, uh, that uh, uh, cleared out uh, a couple hundred thousand Serbs from uh, uh, parts of Serbian, uh, parts of Croatia in 1995, Operation Storm, uh, in which the U.S. military apparently participated directly even by bombing. Uh, so yes, uh, armed, uh, unilateral armed intervention kind that is being condemned uh, includes the semi-privatization of it, that is, the use of uh, mercenaries. And notice that this is pretty common even in within single countries, like there's a lot of recourse to paramilitaries. Well, you know, paramilitaries are kind of the same thing, That's uh, or what they're called in East Timor, militias, same thing. Uh, it's uh, farming out uh, um, uh, uh, military operations to semi-private organizations which operate under the control of the uh, dominant military. Uh, that's an old, old story. I mean, uh, basically, the British ran India this way for a couple of centuries. Professor Chomsky, Noam, you have uh, let people know about the situation in Indonesian East Timor for a quarter of a century, and we have the latest news that was the focus of the UN Security Council yesterday, and that was the killing of three UN workers in West Timor by uh, these uh, Indonesian military supported militias as the Indonesian military did nothing. The New York Times today uh, shows an email of uh, one of the UN workers just before he was killed. Uh, there were three workers, one Croatian, one I believe Ethiopian, and one Puerto Rican, Carlos Caceres Collazo. And this was his email uh, to uh, someone else just before the mobs moved in to the office in Atambua. It says, I was in the office when the news came out that a wave of violence would soon pound Atambua. We sent most of the staff home rushing to safety. I just heard someone on the radio saying they're praying for us in the office. The militias are on the way, and I'm sure they will do their best to demolish this office. The man killed was the head of one of the most notorious and criminal militia groups of East Timor. He's referring to a man who was killed the night before. These guys act without thinking and can kill a human as easily and painlessly as I kill mosquitoes in my room. The email ends by saying, you should see this office, plywood on the window, staff peering out through openings and the curtains hastily installed a few minutes ago. We're waiting for this enemy. We sit here like bait, unarmed, waiting for wave to hit and then he and the other two workers were dragged out by the mob, and they were killed. It looks like we are now looking at, in West Timor and into East Timor, a contra-war along the border. 
that the Indonesian military is fueling. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, you can personally add vivid detail from your own experience. Uh, but uh, this has been going on for some time. Uh, on uh, late August, I think around August 25th, uh, there was another attack. There was also a, an attack on uh, a U, um, UNHCR uh, uh, op, op, uh, operate, people operating in West Timor, and in fact, uh, the uh, UNHCR, the High Commission on Ref Refugees, uh, uh, withdrew its, suspended its operations. They then tried to start them up again, and then this happened. Uh, this is uh, these are this is pretty much what we've been talking about. The the militias are agents of the Indonesian military, in particular, apparently, of the uh, uh, special forces, the Kapasas forces, which uh, have a long relationship with the United States. They were, we know that they were being trained as right through 1998, at least. I don't know exactly what the relations are now. Uh, the uh, uh, and uh, they are notorious for their. These are Indonesian special forces, not militias. Uh, notorious for their uh, brutality and savagery in uh, East Timor and uh, Aceh and elsewhere. Uh, and now they're, they're operating in Indonesian West Timor. Yes, they are sending uh, 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 organized uh, groups, at least eight or ten of them, it seems, uh, well-trained, well-armed fighters into East Timor. Uh, their goal is apparently what it was uh, through 1999 to break up East Timor into a sector which will be incorporated into Indonesia and uh, cause enough uh, destruction and turmoil so that they'll achieve this. Uh, this is uh, the Indonesian army which we have armed and trained and supported. It's not uh, uh, at the moment uh, the U.S. is somewhat standing off because of the uh, huge atrocities of last year which made it necessary to back off a little bit, uh, but they're back in. I don't think there's the slightest doubt that the U.S. could stop this by uh, the, you know, just uh, blinking an eye. I mean, we saw a dramatic example of that last September uh, when, uh, in the face of overwhelming atrocities, uh, the Clinton administration was finally pressured to, uh, uh, to terminate its position that what's happening is the responsibility of the Indonesians, and we don't want to take it away from them. That was the official position right through all of the atrocities. And finally, in mid-September, under lots of international and domestic pressure, they backed off from that. Uh, and within almost hours, the Indonesian military had uh, completely reversed course 180 degrees. Uh, up, to that, up to that time, they'd been announcing very clearly that they would uh, not only not withdraw from the territory, but would forcefully resist any attempt to uh, intervene. Uh, after Clinton's statement, they said, okay, goodbye, we're going home. Uh, that's a pretty graphic indication of the uh, amount of leverage that has been available for the last 25 years and is in West Timor right now. There's still, I don't know if anyone knows exactly, but maybe 130,000 or so uh, uh, East Timorese in the camps in West Timor. And incidentally, many others scattered somewhere in Indonesia. Nobody's paying any attention to them. Uh, how many of them want to go back? We don't know. The camps have been, the um, international organizations like the UNHCR, even the Red Cross, have often been kept out of the camps. There's plenty of intimidation. Uh, there is, re reporters do get in. Uh, you can read reports in 
British press, lots in the Australian press, uh, and uh, they uh, give accounts of uh, uh, brutal terror and intimidation, uh, of uh, which can uh, uh, carried out by uh, paramilitary forces under the control of the Indonesian special forces, which are closely linked to the U.S. military and have been for 30 years, probably. Professor Chomsky, um, we're also joined by Reverend Jesse Jackson, but there is an issue that um, you both are have commented on and are involved with. I was just looking at the letter that is the foreword to the new book on Laurie Berenson, whose trial apparently has started without her uh, in Lima, Peru. Uh, you may know that... Uh, uh, she had her military sentence voided last week by a military tribunal, but she's on trial again, supposedly a civilian trial. She doesn't have a lawyer. The prosecutor and the judge are working together, have already begun interrogating witnesses. Lori Berenson or any legal assistants doesn't know what they are saying. Your comment on this case of uh, an American woman who is being uh, held prisoner in Peru, uh, actually like thousands of Peruvians. Yeah, I mean, this case happens to be a young woman who happens to have come from MIT, so here I am. Uh, but, that's uh, right, that's she was a student at MIT she when you were a professor. At MIT, yeah. uh, the, uh, but your last comment is quite right, uh, thousands of Peruvians. Uh, we see uh, dramatically what their lives are like by uh, looking at the fate of an American woman young American woman who's been subjected to it. Actually, she went there out of a commitment to trying to uh, improve the uh, uh, horrendous situation of uh, ordinary people, poor people in Peru. In Peru. Uh, the trial, we, we can't use the word for it. I mean, the first trial, the military trial, was uh, one of these faceless uh, faceless judge trials. You know, there's, can't even, faceless justice, it's called. It's uh, not even worth discussing witnesses, there's no uh, cross-examination, there's nothing, it's just a star chamber. And this one has a thin civilian cover, but it's not much different. Uh, again, the uh, uh, US, in this case, in the case of an American citizen, the U.S. government can easily uh, make moves to uh, uh, bring her home, uh, and there should be great pressure on the government to do that. Or to let her stay there if she wants to stay, but say she may very well want to stay. She's a very courageous woman. Reverend Jackson is on the line with us as well, Reverend Jesse Jackson, who has now gotten involved with Lori Berenson's case. Uh, her conviction on terrorism has been voided. Uh, now she has been moved to Lima, Peru, yesterday on Democracy Now! We played Lori herself speaking about conditions in the prisons, saying that she is innocent of the charges, saying that she wants to be free. This is the first time her voice has been heard in five years since she was sentenced to life in prison. Reverend Jackson, you are saying you're going to go, you would go down to Peru to bring her back? Yes, I'm trying to meet with uh, Fujimura today. He's in New York. Uh, willing to go to meet with him in Peru and to visit her in, in jail. You know, we must understand that describing the rules of her imprisonment does not serve us very well because she is a political prisoner. Uh, she's charged with treason. Well, how can you not be a, uh, a citizen of the country and be 
and and be guilty of treason against a government that is not yours. I mean, so the 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 the, the hyped up version of of the charge, uh, it suggests she was thrown away for five years, uh, not because of treason, but because she made the government uncomfortable as uh, as a protester speaking out, which which we would think to be kind of basic. But after five years, the the break in the case, the military uh, says they don't have the foundation for their charge five years ago for which she has paid. They're kicking it to the civilian um, because there is this crack. My appeal to our own president, the own secretary of state, is to join with us in appealing for her uh, unconditional release. Uh, it's clear to me that if uh, Peru wants stronger diplomatic ties and and trade ties and wants to have its rightful place at the family of nations, it must, in fact, observe human rights. A step in that direction would be to release uh, Lori. But more than that, look at the other people in the same similar predicament in Peru. Professor Chomsky, do you think that Clinton, uh, President Clinton, who has not made a public statement on Lori Berenson's behalf, calling on Fujimori to release her, um, do you think that he would have special sway given the tens of millions of dollars that the U.S. has been giving to the Peruvian military? You know, the question's rhetorical, of course. Uh, he, he doesn't even have to make a public statement. The U.S. could make uh, private, uh, uh, private initiatives would have the same effect. Uh, just as in the case of Indonesia, a much huger case. Sure, the U.S. has a, a enormous uh, leverage over Peru, and if it wants to use it, it could have had Lori Berenson released five years ago, uh, and it could uh, have acted to uh, uh, constructively uh, in, in the interests of the people who she went there to help. It can also do that. Choices. Reverend Jackson, what do you think is holding President Clinton back from even making a public statement? You've been spending a lot of time with him on the you know, campaign I trail. Know, I do not know the internal politics of that, except I do know that uh, that I am involved. I'm not going to leave any stone unturned in my attempt to get uh, the attention at every level of our government, but also other governments as well, while we're here at the U.N. Nations uh, Summit meeting this week. You know, two weeks ago, there were four. America for a journalist imprisoned in Liberia, two from um, Britain, one from Sierra Leone, and one from South Africa. They were charged with uh, treason, charged with espionage, uh, a capital crime punishable by death. The fact is, they have offended the state by raising critical questions, not by espionage, not by treason, but the state was trying to justify itself by locking them up. And after seven days of negotiations, we were able to appeal to President Charles Taylor to let them go. And he did on last Friday. In a case like this, what it is, uh, uh, Taylor in Liberia, uh, Assad in, in Syria, uh, Milosevic in Yugoslavia, you have to make a mercy appeal on humanitarian grounds and try to identify their interests. What do they stand to gain from it? That's why we cannot be saying things here that make headlines in the rudest that, that uh, reinforce the rope around her neck, if you understand what I'm saying. People should be very guarded about what they say publicly because we are free to say anything here. But what we say here may not even make the local paper 
It makes a headline there, which tightens the noose around her neck. So there are those who are fighting for her to do so with some good judgment on what is said, but ask our government and allies to maximize pressure on showing uh, Fujimori the advantages of letting her go. And I see advantages, A, uh, the diplomatic advantages of letting her go, the trade advantages of letting her go, their relations with neighbors. So let's deal with his advantages, and but keep our focus on uh, making the easier path to get her out of there. While I have you both on the phone, I'm sorry to stations that we haven't broken yet for our uh, uh, break at the 40 minutes into the hour, but it's rare to have Reverend Jesse Jackson Noam Chomsky on the line at the same time. And at this time of a world gathering at the United Nations, historic moment when um, more than 140 world leaders are there, you're... I wanted to get each of your perspective on what you feel the United States' role should be right now in the world. Uh, Reverend Jackson. Well, we should set the moral and ethical standard of values in the world. We do not come to the world community as Santa Claus giving out gifts. We should come as a strategic partner helping to set the tone for world citizenship in year uh, 2000. as I observed the meeting on yesterday, 150 world leaders and leaders of nations under one roof. That was the beauty of it all. That was the high side. The low side was each were allowed to speak five minutes. Each gave his or her own formal five-minute speech to each other, but none of them talked with each other. There was no dialogue that would, in effect, change relations. So if you came there not talking with Iran or with Cuba or with China or East Timor. You left not talking with them. We must go from not talking to each other, being outside of one room, to coming in one room, talking with each other. And what is so clear in the New World community, uh, it's such a small house, so locked by Internet, so locked by dwarfed by distance and time and technology. AIDS anywhere is a threat to, to health care everywhere. The debt crisis anywhere is a threat to economic growth everywhere. It really is. Uh, in one room, you really could just see how small the globe is. Uh, this has been a success for meeting this, getting these leaders to come. And they must act together. And if, if the U.S., uh, in its role, defines trade connected to human rights, and workers' rights. That's the right role for us. We cannot compromise in this world community human rights, labor and environmental rights, and be a, an authentic leader. And yet you are a major supporter of Clinton and Gore. Indeed I am. But, I, but you know, I've always had to deal with, with pressuring uh, our government uh, to, be, to get better. I, I was, I was a, a patriot. Uh, in 63, before we had public accommodations, and we kept pushing till we got it. Uh, I was a patriot, and we didn't have the right to vote in 1965. A part of what makes America great at its best is the right to fight for the right, the right to change things. That's why we who were disenfranchised 25 years ago have the power today to determine the next president, the next Congress, the next Supreme Court. That's what makes uh, those who've been disenfranchised here the envy of the world, unlike China, a fourth of the world's population. 
unlike Asia, half the world's population, unlike Africa, uh, an eighth of the world's population, we in America have the power to determine the next leaders of the free world, and we should exercise that right. Professor Noam Chomsky, your evaluation of Clinton and Gore, and if you feel they are salvageable? I think uh, any leader, whoever it is, Clinton, Gore, Bush, uh, uh, anyone, uh, will be responsive to uh, public pressures uh, uh, and uh, public opinion. They have to be to some extent. And in a, as Reverend Jackson says, in a more free society, to a greater extent. So we can, whoever will be, uh, they can be pressured to undertake different policies. In fact, that happened in the cases we were discussing. So in the case of uh, the uh, East Timor atrocities, which are not slight, we're talking about some of the worst atrocities of the last quarter century, uh, the United States, Clinton, was finally pressured, uh, partly by domestic pressure, uh, to reverse course and to uh, call them off. Uh, and it can be done on other things, too. Uh, the, uh, as to the stand that the United States, uh, and I'm not sure how much difference there is hard to predict the slight differences among candidates in this respect if you look over time. Uh, the, so, for example, arms control agreements have been mostly initiated or at least signed by Republicans. Uh, the, uh, 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 if we ask what the United States ought to do, I think there are some fairly clear uh, directions indicated right in the call for the Millennium uh, Summit. So it calls on developed countries and uh, to their our urge to uh, carry out actions like uh, they're listed, you know, debt relief, uh, generous development assistance, uh, which has been cut back in the past 10 years almost to nothing in the United States. It barely exists at this point. Uh, to uh, work with the pharmaceutical industry to develop um, a vaccine against HIV. Well, we know what that means. Uh, that means uh, modifying the accountability significantly of the publicly subsidized uh, profit-making corporations uh, that we can certainly done do uh, developed countries are also urged to sign the Kyoto protocol the environmental protocol and to work seriously on uh, climate change issues I mean all of these are things that we can do fact is the Clinton administration and the Republican Congress have been doing the opposite so, for example, the uh, takes a uh, the going back to what we started with support for peacekeeping operations. Uh, its uh, contributions are minuscule. I mean, what Clinton has asked for is undetectable, and that undetectable amount has been cut back. Uh, so, the last news I saw was last July, uh, when the Senate and House Appropriations Committee uh, rejected a request for a hundred million dollars for current expenses in Kosovo and East Timor, both of them. That request is nothing. Reverend Jackson, while we focus on on Clinton, 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 that Jesse Hams, who chairs foreign relations, does not have a passport. Does not have a passport. Showing contempt for the whole world. The president can represent a given point of view, but the appropriation of money has come from Congress. And I think when we look at just a president or vice president, we're looking at the keyhole. We've got to look at the door. You see that the president and the Congress and a vigilant public, all these forces uh, create decisions. 
that country. Noam Chomsky. Decisions are uh, at the state level are determined by the distribution of power inside the country. Uh, overwhelmingly, that means private economic power. I don't think that's a big secret. That's what staffs the executive and uh, sets the conditions within which uh, Congress functions and so on. Uh, on the other hand, the, there are many other uh, uh, there, there are many other factors that intervene, including uh, an organized uh, public. Uh, which has over uh, over the years, that's exactly the way uh, achievements have been uh, have reached of the kind that Reverend Jackson mentioned in the 60s and many others. Uh, case last September is another, and there are endless numbers. So yes, we should uh, uh, try to, in the case of say peacekeeping operations, pressure the government uh, to respond to the call of the uh, United Nations. Uh, to uh, provide uh, resources for them to be carried out instead of cutting back those resources, uh, even in Kosovo and East Timor, uh, to uh, cutting back those resources to virtually nothing. They, now, this is a combination of the executive branch and Congress. The requests from the executive were very slight. Uh, right after, as soon as the UN mission went in in East Timor, uh, the U.S. immediately, the government, this is Clinton, immediately called for a reduction of the mission and refused to fund it. Uh, Congress cut it even further. Uh, the same has been true in Kosovo. The same has been true elsewhere in Sierra Leone. Uh, the, the, a couple of years ago, Clinton uh, 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 undermined at the UN uh, even a British initiative uh, to do something as the atrocities were building up. We're talking about peacekeeping now, but what about war, the sanctions against Iraq that are continuing? These are uh, unilateral. The bombing of Yugoslavia... Reverend Jackson, for those that are weighing now, those in the Democratic camp, whether to support Nader or, uh, or Gore, uh, what do you say to those when it comes to each of these issues, considered by some the most significant issue above all is the bombing of other countries, um, with Gore supporting every step of the way, not only these bombings, but back in this country talking about killings, execution? Hello? Hi. I miss your point. I was just saying, what do you say to those um, who are weighing now whether to support Al Gore or Ralph Nader, the Green Party, that on these critical life and death issues, the bombing of other countries like Yugoslavia and Iraq, and here at home, execution, the death penalty, that Gore stands with the Republicans in every case? Well, you know, I think that the there's no moral foundation for the death penalty. And as a matter of fact, uh, what we see is that more and more people are being killed who are innocent uh, because of, of race, because of lack of legal representation, mistaken identity, wrongful conviction. But it seems as if they, that our politicians, even who don't believe in it, are locked into the fear of, of not sitting for the death penalty because of where... Uh, some of in the people of the country warped on that issue. I think that we must keep applying pressure. Um, uh, some of these are long struggles. For example, uh, we know that uh, Clinton, I mean, that, that the, the George Ryan moratorium on death penalty alone was a breakthrough. Uh, there was an 
Hispanic. And he is a conservative Republican. In August, was scheduled to die, and Clinton stayed the execution. We, that that's a crack coming in that dike. Some of these fights are not one round, one lick fights. They are fifteen round fights. When I look at the cumulative box score, the forces on the Democratic side, um, labor and civil rights forces and black and Hispanic caucus, the women forces, we will win that battle to stop the death penalty in this country if we keep pressing our case. When I look at the other team, it's not just Bush and Cheney. It's Bush, Cheney, Strom Thurmond, Jesse Hams, Trent Lott. Um, it is Dick Harvey, uh, Orrin Hatch. These are rather mean forces that are on that team. And for them... Discussing these changes is non-discussable and non-negotiable. Well, we only have a minute, but Professor Chomsky, that argument of the army of uh, Thurman, Helms, Lot, etc., and Supreme Court decisions and the issue of choice, uh, justices, etc., what's your comment? I think all these things have to be taken into account, and I think that uh, one point that Reverend Jackson made that I would certainly want to underscore is that the constituencies, the popular constituencies of the two business parties, or the two factions of the business party, their popular constituencies are different, and any political organization is going to be somewhat responsive to its own constituency. So that does tend to, to lead to some differences in choices made by, at the higher level, Congress and the uh, executive, by the two um, parties. But we should remember that they are two factions of a single party, uh, and the differences are very small, and the pressures can often be uh, uh, introduced uh, effectively or sometimes even more effectively uh, when the other faction of the business party is in power. These are very slight decisions. If you look over time, it's, you can find some differences. They go all kinds of ways, uh, and it's a kind of, a, in a way, a low-level tactical decision as to which uh, stand to take with regard to them. The most more important one, which is common no matter who happens to be in office, is to maintain the education and organizing effort uh, and uh, focus on the issues and uh, initiate public pressures, not only pressures, but actually substantive change, like fin alternative organizations. Finally, Reverend Jackson, are you calling yes, on Gore to include Nader and Buchanan in the official debate? Yeah, it's all right if they do it. If they don't, Gore or Bush will be the next president. And, and what concerns me about that is that Kennedy beat Nixon by 112,000 votes in 1960. Uh, in 1968, Humphrey lost to Nixon by 500,000 votes. I don't want, as a practical matter, we have five to run the risk of losing this campaign on the margin of experiment. So you I don't say, think they should be included? Um, it's all right for them to debate. I'm telling people stay out the bushes and more with Gore. Those are my politics. I'm, okay. It's on well, the table. Reverend Jackson and Professor Noam Chomsky, thanks for joining us. Sid Rock Franklin and Jillian uh, Aldrich, our producers, Matthew Fincher, engineer. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.